Today's episode of Recovery Survey is fueled by Brainwash Coffee Company. I'm sure you've heard that drug and alcohol use is on the rise, especially during the pandemic. And Brainwash Coffee Company is working to raise money and awareness to support people seeking help. They donate 50% of their profits and their mission is to give back to the amazing recovery community. Their why is bold and their coffee is fresh. So if you want to sip on an amazing brew that warms your mind, body, and soul, then visit brainwashcoffeeco.com and use promo code recovery survey at checkout to get $5 off your first order. Brainwash Coffee Company, simple coffee for complicated people. You're listening to Recovery Survey, the podcast that shatters stigmas around different types of addictions and takes a deep dive into spiritual principles. Came straight up to me and said, promise me you won't die before me. And in that moment, I decided I have to fight with him. He was going to fight, I was going to fight, and we were going to fight together. My guest today is named Tony Quinn. She's in recovery for substance use disorder and anorexia, and she recently celebrated 10 years sober. She is joining us today from South Africa. Welcome to the show, Tony. Hi, guys. My name is Tony Quinn. I am 36 years old, and on Wednesday, I reached 10 years sober, which I never thought would happen. 10 years ago, I was taken to my third rehab, didn't want to be there, and was kind of going to go into that thinking, this time I'll manipulate the system. And when I get out, I'll magically prove to my parents that I'm okay, go back to using and just live my life like that. But something different happened this time. I went in, all the counselors at this rehab were actually recovering addicts. And you know, you know what they say, like you can't bullshit a bullshitter. So I was sitting there telling them all my sob stories, like poor me, poor me, pour me a drink kind of stuff. And my one counselor turned to me and she said, I was telling a story about how my cousin passed away. My cousin was like my sister and kind of using that as an excuse for the drinking, for the meth use, for everything. And instead of reacting like other counselors had reacted, you know, with uh, way too much empathy, not too much, just a lot of empathy, a lot of sympathy. Uh, she turned to me with empathy and she said, so how does it feel having disrespected the memory of your cousin? And it was so, so harsh, but so, so true. And in that moment, you know, you've got that like fight inside of you. And I was holding onto the chair in group therapy. So everyone's hearing all of this. And I was like, I'm going to throw this at her. And then I was thinking she will beat the shit out of me. I'm basically dying in this chair right now. And I sat with it and I sat with it. And that's when everything changed for me. It was this, this self-awareness that I'd never had in my entire life because for me, I was always the victim and that fueled my illnesses. And in that moment, things started to change. And then as time went by, I, I did that rehab long-term. I actually went into kidney failure, pre-renal failure there, came back, carried on the program, went from there to a halfway house and from a halfway house to a sober house. So I was basically in a rehabilitation environment for two years. And from there, as days went by, literally one day at a time, 
for the first time in my life, I realized I have too much to lose. And it's 10 years later and things are magnificent there. I mean, there's a lot of shit, obviously life is shit, but there's a lot of beauty and um, recovery is the best thing that's ever happened to me in my life. And I'm so grateful for it. Mm. And I love that you brought up that that thought of from where you were playing the victim to all of a sudden you're having to own what's going on. And I think there's I think there's a lot of power when we have that realization, we have that mindset shift of I'm not the victim. And I can remember having a similar realization and it was at a 12 step meeting and talking about like the majority of the things that are going wrong in my life are due to my own actions and realizing like after the meeting, reflecting on that and sitting there and thinking about the situations that I'm in now, you know, legal trouble and all these different things and realizing my role in them and what I did to put myself in those situations. Absolutely. And it's, it's the weirdest kind of realization. Like so recently I've actually been going through my journals so journals from when I was 12 years old until I was 33. And I always played the victim. It's I, I feel like I was an addict before I picked up drugs, you know? So I'm going through this and it's always this happened to me, that happened to me, never ever seeing my role in it. And only at the age of, when did I get, I was 27, only at the age of 27, 26 did I realize that Look, there's a lot of things in our lives, in my life, where I was the victim, but there were a lot of moments in active addiction where I was victimizing. And it's hard to wrap your head around. Like like you're saying, you know, realizing the legal trouble you're in, the consequences of your actions and owning them is so difficult. It's so much easier to go back, so much easier to forget it's happened. But we move forward. That's what we do. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's, that's part of the whole growth process. And, and it's not easy. It's not, it's not fun. It's not pleasant all the time. You know, there, there is some pain in that growth, but coming out on the other side, I'll just speak for me personally, coming out on the other side, I feel more complete. I feel like I understand myself more. I feel like I can deal with situations in life easier now that I can see a more full picture of what my life was like and the decisions that I made that led up to those events in my life. Well, that's beautiful. And that's true, you know, and I also feel like that's something a lot of people need to know that recovery isn't easy. You know, we don't put down the drugs and things are magically cool. Things are magically great. Like life is life. And we've also done a lot of really, really shit things in active addiction and we have to face it. It's like, You know, we start using drugs. They say like trauma is the gateway drug. I think it was Russell Brand who said that. And look, it does make sense. And we go into the addiction and we like trying to mask whatever our trauma is because it's all relative, you know. And then we start using and we create even more trauma. And then it becomes difficult to put it down. And we have to face all those traumas, the traumas from before, the traumas during, in recovery. That's the only way the only way to get through it, like you have to sit with that. You really have to sit with that and face that. And it's not easy. And I I mean, I have, um, I'm in a 12 step program. I'm in Narcotics Anonymous and I've got sponsees who are kind of like, where are the gifts of recovery? You know, why haven't I gotten them immediately? It's like, it takes work and you have to genuinely trust the process. 
I love that. And, and I heard a guy at a meeting one time describe drug use as pain on a payment plan. It's like getting a credit card and we take that pain away in that moment. But eventually once that high wears off, like we have to deal with those feelings. We have to deal with those emotions and those things that we're trying to escape. Eventually at some point we're going to have to feel those. So, you know, today I live in the, in the way where I, I deal with them in the moment instead of trying to delay them and, and not face them. Absolutely. That's so beautiful. I love what, what, what you just said there. Thank you for sharing that with me. You know, like it's like, it's our pain on credit. I love that because it is. And yeah, you know, like we get the tools in recovery to deal with things. And it, I mean, it takes a long time to get there. You know, traumas happen in real life. They happen. Life isn't easy. But we get the, I mean, if we can get through that, well, if I could get through what, sorry, I'll speak for myself. If I could get through that and face all the shit I did and all the shit that happened to me, then literally taking things moment by moment is incredible. Like it's going to be shit, but I've got the tools and I can implement them. I can use them if I choose to. I love that. I love that. So I'd be curious to know, how did you get into the social media uh, aspect? I've seen some of your accounts. You're posting a lot of stuff about recovery and inspirational messages. How did all that come about? Oh, cool. So it's actually, it's a weird story. So what happened was, um, it's not a weird story. It's kind of sad. <laughs> I, I was always open about my addiction. Uh, it's never anything I've hidden. And, you know, when you reach your, your, my year or something, I would post to my personal Facebook page, like, you know, reach this milestone, that milestone, and it's pretty cool. And the thing is, I also struggled with severe, severe anorexia. So I had anorexia pre-addiction, and then I had addiction. And then when I put down the drugs and the alcohol and I was in that recovery, my eating disorder came back a million times worse than it had ever been. Uh, like, I, like we said previously, recovery isn't easy. All this stuff comes to the surface. So three years ago, so I was in recovery from addiction, but I wasn't in recovery from the eating disorder. And one day I w- went with my father to the hospital and we went there and he was feeling a bit sick. We didn't think it was anything serious at all. He's a very strong man. He was, he was young. He was 60 years old, very strong man. And we got called into the room and the doctor looks at us and said, Alan, you're in trouble, man. You've got nine months. It's pancreatic cancer, stage four. And I'm sitting there and I'm looking at my father, who was my biggest advocate in this recovery. I mean, my best friend, everything to me. And I looked at him and I realized he's going to die. He's going to die. There's, there's nothing we can do. He's going to die. And in that moment, I realized that is how he had been looking at me my whole life. Like he was like, she is going to die. She is going to die. And as he sat there and he took in the information, we left the room and he came straight up to me. He didn't go to my brother. He didn't go to his girlfriend. He didn't go to his sister. He came straight up to me and said, promise me you won't die before me. And in that moment, I decided. I have to fight with him. He was going to fight. I was going to fight. And we were going to fight together. And that's the day I made up my mind to try fight the eating disorder. When my father passed away, he didn't get to see me recover. But 
I started to recover and I was sitting with my friends um, having coffee at the spot I used to go with my dad to every Sunday. They came with me. They started coming with me every Sunday. And we were, we were all creatives and everyone was like, we're bored. You want to do something? And I thought it's the perfect time for me to start speaking about this because I can say fully in this moment, I'm recovered from addiction and I'm recovering from the eating disorder and I'm, I'm okay to talk about it now. And so we decided to start a YouTube channel started a YouTube channel and that was fun for a while. And then a year ago I started TikTok and I started doing really satirical, funny videos with some emo emotional stuff as well. And then a few of them went viral and now I'm addicted to TikTok and that's how I find myself. Yeah. Very cool. That's, that's an awesome story. And, and it's interesting. And I I've seen that pattern in, in other people's stories in my story where you know, I, I put the drugs and the alcohol down and then there's like, there's the next thing, you know, there's the next addiction that I have to overcome. There's the next thing that, that I become obsessive and compulsive about. For me, it's kind of, it's the, I guess it would still be considered an eating disorder, but I I'm on the opposite end where I overeat yeah. and <laughs> you know, the, the, the uh the joke that that i hear around the rooms is you know from junkie to chunky or put down the spoon pick up the fork like i went the opposite way and now it's like whatever i can get my hands on i'm just like stuff in my face and 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 it's hard because i can find myself in this place where i can justify it where i look at it and i go well it's better to eat a cheeseburger than to smoke crystal meth but at the same mm -hmm. time i'm still doing harm to my body i'm still not doing the things that I know I should be doing, but I, but I find myself falling in that trap of comparison and saying, well, this mm -hmm. one is so much better, better. I'm, I'm air quoting for everybody that's listening <laughs> better than this one. But I know that I shouldn't be doing either. I know that I should be eating healthier. I know I should be exercising more. I know what I should be doing. I just don't want to do it. Cross addiction for me is such a fascinating thing. You know, look, I put down, I've had so many so many cross addictions and I also do the comparison thing. And sometimes we do find things that work for us. When I started to work through the eating disorder, I started really cross addicting to tattoos, just say, um, which is body modification in some way. Yes, I see yours, bro. <laughs> but and that for me is that that's a healthy, that's a healthier outlet, you know? Um, I'm creating something, I'm doing something. But with the eating disorders, whether it be binge eating, anorexia, bulimia, it's so prevalent in recovery. And it's something I feel a lot of people also don't talk about too much. And we do do that thing where it's comparing. Like, I remember my mom would say to me, yeah, I'm really worried about you. You're not well. And I'd be like, well, it's better than men. Mm -hmm. And she's like, is it? <laughs> you know, and obviously there's parts of it that are, but it's still that prison. We put up, we take ourselves out of a prison and put ourselves in another prison. But I feel like, you know, eating disorders that we have, for example, it's a mental, it really is a mental illness. And it's so hard to break that cycle. And what I always say is the fact that we can acknowledge it. Or if I can acknowledge something, it means at least I'm not in denial about it. And I'll be able to kind of work my way through when I choose to. And it's hard to get to that point because it's our comfort. You know, we've got, like they say, in, in a, you know, feeding the hole in our soul. We put whatever we can in there just to try feel something. And it's hard to find that balance. It really is hard to find that balance. But when we, when people talk about it, that's how, that's how we get through it. And that's how we help others.
Mm, I love that you brought up balance. I feel like that has been the theme for the last couple of weeks has been balance and finding that balance. And it's something that I've struggled with my entire recovery journey and it's not easy to find that balance. And so if there's anybody that's listening, that's struggling with that balance, it's, I think it's a pretty common thing for us to struggle to find that balance in, in just our daily lives and, and trying to find what works for us. And, and it's so easy, like you were saying, filling that, that empty spot in us, you know, I have that disease of more, whatever it is, I want more of it, whatever I'm focused on at the moment. If it's food, I want more. If it's sex, I want more. Mm -hmm. If it's money, I want more, whatever it is, I want more. It's never enough. I want more. I think that's just the, the disease of addiction in my head. You know, whatever it is, I want as much of it as I can get. I'm exactly the same. It's crazy. It's, I was thinking about all the the more, the wanting of more and the like unable to balance. So let's say in the past two years, if my cat, my cat just might jump, jump on me at this point in time. Sorry if you hear me out. Um, I cross addicted <laughs> to Botox. Well, okay, you guys can't see me, but I can't move my forehead too much. <laughs> cross addicted to that, cross addicted to tattoos. Then was the eating disorder, then was coffee and and TikTok. Very much so, you know, that social media validation, consistent validation. It's like I'm doing it for good reasons, but then there's this, obviously there's some validation that comes with it. I tried to create balance in my life now, and I started doing this last month where I'll only, you know, look at my phone or make a video after a certain time in the day, or else I'm just sitting there and I'm going through it, going through it, going through it, and I get lost in that world. And you know, when things become a problem, this is kind of how I can pick up when an obsession or a hobby is becoming an addiction when everything else around it, the rest of my life becomes affected by it. Mm. See, there's my cat. Sorry. So um, for example, TikTok, I'll be, I got so obsessed with it and like speaking to people and creating these conversations. And I love it. I really love it. I love the community there, but I'd be sitting on the couch and me and my boyfriend will be watching TV and I'm just sitting there on my phone. And, you know, it starts frustrating him and it seeps into all the other areas of my life. Like I'll be working and then I'm in the middle of a project. Next second, I've got a ring light on and I'm making a TikTok forgetting that I have this project. So it's about finding the balance that way. Is it affecting the rest of my life? Is it hurting the people around me? If so, what can I do to kind of, you know, work my way around that? And that's, that's where I am right now in terms of cross addictions as such and balance. I love that. And that's, that's such a great point that you bring up about how it affects other areas. And and that's a good gauge for us to see if our, if our other addictions are affecting other (laughs) areas, but, but you also brought up earlier and, and I love the point that you brought up of we're not going to change until we're ready to change. And I feel like that's something that people need to hear and we need to say it over and over and over again, because, and I'm sure it was the same for you, for me, there were plenty of people in my life that were telling me I shouldn't be using, I shouldn't be drinking. But until I got to the point where I was ready to stop, that was when I was able to make that change. Same with cigarettes. It's been a little over five years since I've had a cigarette. Whoa. Impressive, bro. (laughs) Well, I, 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 I still, I substituted, you know, I still, I still get a little bit of nicotine, but 
it wasn't until I got to the point where I was ready to stop. I, it wasn't mm-hmm. until I got to the point where I was sick of smoking cigarettes that I then became willing to try something different. It wasn't because my grandparents were texting or calling and you know, it, it was like every time my grandma would like at the end of every phone call, she'd be like, you need to stop smoking. That didn't phase me. I didn't, I didn't care because I liked it. I enjoyed it. I got pleasure from it. But as soon as I got to the point where I was tired of it, I didn't like it. Then I was able to do something about it. Absolutely. Like I still haven't given up cigarettes. Three months ago, I gave up coffee because I'm not in that mindset where I'm, I'm ready to do that, you know, but with, and I feel like the point is so, like, it's so important to get it out there because a lot of loved ones of addicts, you know, it's the most frustrating, heartbreaking thing in the world. My mom, my mom specifically dragged me from rehab to rehab, crying, screaming. I would do terrible things to this woman. And she just wanted to help me. And I was not ready to take that help. And I wish she knew then that it would have been okay for her to take a step back and be like, you know what? If she wants to do this, it's okay for me not to hurt myself. The way. Like she was hurting herself, trying to fix me, trying to save me, blaming herself. And there's genuinely not much you can give. She could have given, she gave me the resources. She could say, these are your options. If you want to take them, I will be there for you to take them. And it would have been okay. But like my brother did, my brother completely wrote me off, completely wrote me off. Not because he hated me, not because he didn't want me to get better, because he knew I wasn't going to. And he didn't want to put himself and his girlfriend or, you know, anyone he loved in that harmful situation. And he knew I would only get better when I was ready to get better. And I think parents, loved ones, it doesn't mean you, can, you have to walk away from your child. You just need to know it's not your fault and you can't force it. No one can force it. It's just, it's, it's hard because, you know, you know, I mean, it ends in jails, institutions or death, and you kind of have to accept that it could possibly end that way, but it would end that way whether or not, you know, you, you tried everything. Mm. So it's, it's an, it's, it's a difficult one to, to wrap your head around. I'm so sorry about my cat. If you can hear him. No, it's totally fine. What, what's your cat's name? That's Nacho. Nacho has a girlfriend who lives outside. And she comes to the door once a day and he wants to go and see her. And then I have Waffles and Waffles is just sitting next to me. And he's very jealous of Nacho's girlfriend. <laughs> I love that. Those are great <laughs> names for cats. Yeah. <laughs> well, back to what you were saying, though. Uh, I, I think, again, balance kind of comes into that, you know, as, as a loved one of someone that's struggling with an addiction and finding that balance of enabling. And mm. it's, it's, it, just, it just has to be, a, I don't know, because I've never been in that position, but it to me, it has to be difficult to see someone going through addiction from the outside and wanting to help, wanting to, to you know, you know what the answer is, just stop. But how do you communicate that to them? How do you get them to that point? It has to be difficult. And I, and I have people ask me all the time, I'll, I'll get messages on, on social media and stuff from, from family members of, of active addicts asking like, what do I do? How do I help them? And usually my response is they have to be ready. They have to get to that point themselves. Like there's nothing that you can do to get them to that point. They have to, they have to be there, just be there. Well, you know, and, and what I try to tell them is, you know, you can still love them. You can still be a part of their lives, but try to do it, try to create some space, put some distance, you know, so that you aren't 
necessarily enabling them. And I don't know that enabling someone will prolong their addiction. It might. I don't know. I'm not an expert. But to me, I think it's one of those situations where you have to love that person from a distance, but let them know I'm here for you when you need me. I'm available, but I'm not going to put up with your crap. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to give you money. I'm not going to give you a place to stay, but I'm here when you need me. Yeah. And it's so hard. It's, I spoke to my mom about this quite a lot. And she said one of the hardest things she ever had to do was say no to money for me. Mm. You know, it's like, um, this is my child. My child is telling me she's hungry. My child is telling me that she has nothing, but she knows in her heart, I am going to spend it on drugs. But she's still got that motherly thing where, where she's like, but maybe she does need money for food. I can't let her starve. And she gives it to me. And then the problem is, for example, when I, when I kind of, oh, well, I did OD in the house, then she feels like it's her fault because she gave me the money to access that stuff. And it's this, it's this consistent cycle for parents or loved ones questioning their actions. And that's what I did to my mother. I made her feel like there was nothing more she could do. She could only just, either way she was going to lose. Either way she was going to lose. If, if she gave me money, I was going to use it on drugs. If she didn't give me money, I was going to do something to get money. And she would be hurt by whatever that thing is. It's just lose, 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 lose for, for loved ones. And the one thing I always say to people is you need to take yourself, you need to protect yourself. Mm. You know, as a loved one, as a parent, you need to protect yourself. And when you feel like you're in danger or you're hurting yourself, it's okay to take that step back. But it's so hard to say to say that to people because they're like, well, what if this person dies? What if they die and I wasn't there? But it's what if they do die and you are there? It's just this lose, lose, and you have to wrap your head around it. You have to. And that's why I think support groups uh, for parents and for loved ones are so vital. And a lot of people don't know that those support groups actually exist. My mother didn't know those support groups existed. And I feel like parents and loved ones of addicts sometimes suffer, well, mostly suffer more than the addict does. And they don't know that there's these support groups out there that can actually help them deal with these emotions, whether they choose tough love or not. There are support groups out there for them. And I do feel like that is a really important talking point that um, a lot of us actually should, you know, kind of get out there. Like there's help for you too. Mm, I love that you bring that up. I think that is absolutely critical that, that loved ones also get that support. Like you mentioned, you know, we put them through hell. We, they, they suffer as well and they need to have that support in their lives. And I think that that's a, a big important part of that. I know that my mom, when I first got into recovery, she was going to some Al-Anon meetings because uh, I was the only support group in the area um, and I, and I think that helped her as well, having that same kind of bond, like we have at meetings, you know, being around other people that have been through similar situations mm. and, and that camaraderie and, and understanding of one another. And I think that really helped her as well with, with my whole journey and her being able to maybe understand why I behaved the way that I did, why I did things that I did. Um, and I think that's another important thing that, that loved ones should know is, when we're in our addiction, we're not ourselves, you know, we, mm. or, or I'll speak for me when I was in my addiction, I would do whatever it took to get that next high, you know, even if it was things that went against my morals, even if it was things that went against my beliefs, 
in that moment, it didn't matter as long as I could get that high. That was the most important thing. It didn't matter. Like you were saying, lie to your parents about needing food, knowing that they're going to give you money so that you can take that and then go get dope. Like whatever I have to do, whoever I have to manipulate, whatever it is, as long as I can get that, that's all that matters. Yeah. It's crazy that it's so nice that your mom was able to go to those. My mom won't step foot in any 12 step meeting. She's got like this mad PTSD from it, where even when I mention the word addiction, you can see her whole body kind of goes into shock and she's got this really, she's embarrassed by it and hurt by it and scarred by it. And I have my 10 year uh, share coming up on, on Monday at one of the meetings and my mom won't, I mean, I asked her to come and I understand she won't. And I think there's also a lot of fear around for parents to go and open up in these support group environments about it because it brings everything up. And I wish my mom would give it a try, you know, I really, really do, because I feel like she's never going to work through it ever. Congratulations again on 10 years. That's such a huge milestone. That's, that's just awesome. I'm, I'm so proud of you, even though we just met, like that's, it's just so big and so impressive. Um, we're getting kind of towards the end of the time. So I'd love if you could, uh, maybe give the listeners a little bit of an idea of what your life looks like today. Um, you know, what are some of the beautiful gifts that you've received in recovery? What does, what do they have to look forward to? You know, if they, if they make it to 10 years, what does life look like for you? Oh, that's awesome. Thank you so much again. Life is awesome. Life is awesome. And it's because for the first time in my life, I have freedom of choice. I never had freedom of choice ever. And, you know, when we put down the drugs, we put down the alcohol, that choice is given back to us. And because I've had freedom of choice, I've been able to make decisions, some bad, some good. And I found myself in a situation now where things are just great. And my greatest gifts of recovery are not the material things. Yes, I've gained some material things in this recovery. I'm able to support myself, but it's genuinely not that that I would describe as the greatest gift. What I've got back is family, making amends with people where possible, where possible, being able to be there for my father when he was sick and he was dying. I never thought I would ever get to that point. And when my father passed away, you know, I mentioned previously, my brother completely wrote, wrote me off for my addiction. I walked my brother down the aisle at his wedding in place of my father. And for me, that was the most beautiful moment of recovery that I felt. It wasn't about, it was a recovery moment. It was a recovery moment for me and for my brother. And there was a sense of pride in it, you know, and Everything else that comes with it, I'm in a happy relationship. I can work through a lot of shit. I thought if my father died, it, I would pick up. I was like, that's my biggest reservation. I'm going to use if my dad dies. And my dad died and that didn't even cross my mind. Mm. Freedom of choice. And with freedom of choice comes this amazing world that you can actually just enjoy. I love that. That's, that's absolutely beautiful. And and. And just that idea, that idea of freedom, you know, it's so, it's so important. And, you know, I had a guest on the other day that said that said something similar, but she phrased it in a different way. And it, it's kind of given me this perspective shift. And she said that today I'm trying to live my life 
in a way where I no longer feel the need to escape my reality. And I'm just mm. like, boom, like that's, that's it. Like I'm trying to live a life where I no longer feel like I have to get high just to survive, just to live. And I think that's like the perfect description of what recovery is like. That, that was beautiful. I'm going to use that in my share on Monday night. Do it. Steal it. <laughs> it was beautiful. This podcast won't come out till after the share, so they, they won't have any idea. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Awesome. Well, Tony, if you wouldn't mind, if you, if you could give the listeners some different ways they can find you, you mentioned TikTok. What are some other, uh, what are your, what, what's your name on the different platforms? How can they find you? Well, thank you. So I'm Tony Quinn, T-O-N-I-Q-U-I-N-N-E. Sorry about that, guys. It's a long one. Um, you can find me with that username on TikTok, on Instagram, and on Facebook, and on YouTube. So on YouTube, I've got a channel called Truth Hurts with Tony Quinn, and I've just relaunched it. So if you could check that out. That would be cool. Um, currently doing episodes where I go through all the journals I've written and track my journey to addiction, to anorexia, and to recovery, which is very emotional, and I'm kind of enjoying it. So yeah, thank you. Very cool. Very cool. I will definitely include all those links in the show notes. So if you're listening, you can scroll down on your app and just tap on those different links to take you to those different platforms and you can connect with Tony that way. Tony, I really do appreciate you coming on the show today. It was fabulous getting to connect with you, having this conversation. I just love getting to talk with other people in recovery and just, it's crazy just to me, all the similarities, you know, we're from two different sides of the world and I feel like we've done some of the same things. We've had some of the same thoughts and feelings and it's just really cool to see how even in the beginning where I thought I was so unique and so different from everyone, the the longer I stay around, the more I realize that I'm just like everyone else and that we've all been through similar struggles. So I really do appreciate you coming on today and, and sharing part of your story with us. I appreciate you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. This show is incredible. You're doing great work and I'm genuinely honored to be here. So thank you. Oh, I appreciate it. Tony, thank you again for coming on the show today. I really do appreciate it. And it was great connecting with you guys. I would highly recommend following her on TikTok. She puts out some incredible content. You've been listening to Recovery Survey. If you got anything out of today's episode, I'd ask you to please leave us a five-star review and share this episode with a friend. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can find us at recoverysurvey.com. You can listen to all of our episodes on the website as well as connect with us on social media where you can get previews for upcoming episodes.